so yeah one of the things i love about that that last hymn is the way it reminds us that it's the beauty of christ that transforms us and that actually is a really fitting um, preparation for what we're going to talk about tonight tonight we are going to talk about christian freedom and true spirituality and we're going to talk about the two main threats to understanding and living in christian freedom and embracing true spirituality. And uh, I, I really think, you know, one of the sad things is, as important as the Bible says Christian freedom is, most students, when I survey them, have never heard a sermon devoted to the topic of Christian freedom. It just doesn't seem to be something that we talk about very much. And that's really, it's more than a shame. It's really wrong because of the emphasis that the Bible puts on Christian freedom. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, we have been studying Paul's letter to the Colossians. Last week, we talked about the first part of chapter 2. Tonight, we're going to pick up with verse 16, but verse 16 starts with a therefore. And whenever you find a therefore in the Bible, you should ask, what is the therefore therefore? In other words, what is, what is this connecting to? So I will remind you this. Last week, we talked about the cross and what the cross is all about, and how the cross sets us free from guilt, sets us free from shame, because Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners. Okay? So that was what Paul has been talking about up through verse 15, and now he's going to talk about the implications of that for how we live. True spirituality is always something that flows out of what Jesus did at the cross, and the freedom that he wrought for us there at the cross. So we're going to pick up reading at verse 16, chapter 2 of Colossians. Therefore, in light of the cross, in light of what Jesus has done, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail, detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. True spirituality. Let's pray that the Lord would help us. Pray with me briefly, and then I'm going to dig into this. Lord, we do thank you that Paul is so clear, but also, Lord, we're a bit um, surprised maybe to see how concerned he is that we get this. And so, Lord, help us to pay attention. But more than that, Lord, Send your spirit to open our eyes so that we could take tonight's message deep into our hearts 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are talking about Christian freedom and true spirituality. Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you. And then later down in verse 20, why are you still submitting to these rules, these regulations that are based on human commands and teaching? And, and the reason he's having to come at these things is because there were some false teachers that were upsetting the Colossians who had come to understand the gospel, had come to understand that what Jesus did on the cross was enough, but now it seems there's some false teachers who are saying, well, if you want to really be spiritual, well, then you need more than what Jesus did um, on the cross, right? And I would submit to you that that is a perennial problem in the church, thinking that we need more. And in particular, thinking that we need little rules and rituals to help us live holy lives, or thinking that we need visions and super spiritual experiences, because the normal Christian life just isn't enough. But is the normal Christian life enough? What is the normal Christian life? You know, when you work on a college campus or when you go to college, I will tell you one of the things that is a huge challenge is you get a lot of mixed messages about the normal Christian life. You meet people who express their faith in different ways than maybe you're used to. And you don't want to just sort of reject even trying to learn anything. But I do want to point out this particular thing, that often there's a lot of religious hoopla that goes on on a, a campus like Belmont. Now, a friend of mine who's actually passed away now, a guy named Steve Malone, used to be the RUF campus minister at Auburn. And years ago, he wrote on uh, an RUF email listserv that we have for all the campus ministers where we trade ideas and, and whatnot. And some of the younger guys were, were asking some questions. And he just kind of did this rant that we have all saved and we always read this and share this with new campus ministers because... Man, when you start doing campus ministry in this country, you will often wonder whether or not you're truly spiritual because you'll be around people that talk about things and, and have ways of talking about their faith. You're like, am I really getting it? Do I really understand the gospel? Here's what Steve Malone said to remind us all. He calls this the business at hand. I want you to listen to this. What is the normal Christian life, he says? What are we hoping to see cultivated in students. Once or twice a year, a group comes along with a plan to, quote, take Auburn by storm. There's always a lot of noise and clamor, a lot of labor and money spent. And for a moment, everyone, or at least the Christians, look up to see what's going on. As quickly as it appears, it disappears. Some get excited and want to make more noise next year. But for the most part, the noise fades and people go back to the business at hand. And that is where the church ought to meet people, in the business at hand. The ordinary, mundane duties and experiences that make up the larger portion of our lives. Jesus said the whole sum of Christian living was loving God and loving our neighbor. Did he mean for us to work that out in an arena or in our minute-by-minute -minute ordinary lives? The more difficult and yet truest and most meaningful spirituality is that which deals with Jesus in everything. The prophet Micah charges the people of God with spiritual falsehood 
because they're always making noise in the temple and yet cheat in business. Their spirituality has nothing to do with life. The church has a ministry of presence, being present in people's lives, helping them see the graces of the gospel in all they are and do, being there when God works. What shape does a ministry of presence take? We're to help people share griefs and joys. We're to feed people from the word of God. We're to teach them to open their lives to others. In other words, we help them love God and love people in the regular stuff of life. The ministry of presence doesn't sell well. It's a little hard to measure. We're not even sure what it looks like ourselves sometimes. It requires dogged obedience and robust prayer, but this is what it means to know God. When we think about evangelism and discipleship, we should think about meeting people where they live in the business at hand. There we will find great struggles and messes, and there we will see the transforming graces of Christ. Many Christians will never notice or recognize this as ministry because it makes so little noise. So what? God brings extraordinary things out of the ordinary. I think that is a great vision for what we're trying to do, not only in the church, but in RUF, which is an arm of the church. We want to meet people in the ordinary things of life. And that's what Paul is talking about here. What does it mean to believe the gospel in the ordinary things of life? And is that enough? Eugene Peterson, who translated the Bible into a version we call the message, described the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. Not perfection, but trajectory. What is the normal Christian life? What is true spirituality? Well, Paul tells us in this text. He begins by telling us that the normal Christian life looks like freedom because the gospel has set you free. He says, don't let anyone judge you about so-called spiritual stuff. Why? Because of what Christ has done on the cross. Again, the therefore should always make you ask, what's the therefore, therefore? The therefore is to say that the normal Christian life, which is freedom, freedom derives its character, its lifeblood from what Jesus did at the cross. This is the kind of freedom that Paul's describing here. Don't let yourself be judged by people who say you're not very spiritual. And he says we should fight for this. Don't let yourself be judged. That's kind of fighting words there, okay? And it's all based on what he talked about the section before. What did we learn there about the cross? Well, we learned a lot of things. I encourage you to go back and listen to that message on the Belmont RUF podcast if you want. But in short, what Paul said is we've been set free from judgment and guilt because the law that stood opposed to us and had every right to judge us because we had not obeyed the law, Jesus took that law and nailed it to the cross. And it judges us no more. We've been set free from guilt. We've been set free from shame because Jesus took shame when he was publicly humiliated on the cross. And when he was humiliated, he actually humiliated the powers and the principalities. So the cross means an end to shame. The cross also means we've been set free from having to perform to earn God's love. All through chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, Paul keeps talking about the gospel as something that happened to us. 
not something that we did or cooperated with or, or brought about by our own efforts in any sort of way. When you get that, as humbling as it is, it sets you free from thinking that you have to perform to earn God's love. In short, Paul says, we've been set free because Jesus lived and died in our place. And you've probably heard this quote, I like to quote from Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the last century who said, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. That is freedom. And that is the normal Christian life. It's based on the gospel, it looks like freedom, and it's something that you have to fight for. And Christian freedom, guys, is everywhere in the Bible. Jesus in John chapter 8 says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In Galatians, Paul tells the people there that he had to oppose to their face those who were trying to undermine Christian freedom. And here in Colossians, Paul says, don't let anyone judge you. And if you've died to the basic principles of the world when you became a Christian, why would you put yourself back in that bondage again? The normal Christian life is about freedom. And yet, there are so few sermons on freedom. I wonder if you've ever heard a whole sermon devoted to Christian freedom. Again, most of the students I know have never heard Christian freedom talked about. And I really wonder why. I really wonder why. Perhaps it's because the church today has often substituted false ideas of spirituality for the biblical one. You know, Luther, Martin Luther, and John Calvin, they weren't perfect by any means. But one of the things that was interesting when you think about both of those guys is they were very zealous for the issue of Christian freedom. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther said that very few of his writings really deserved to be read after he died. But one of the few was the little pamphlet he wrote called The Liberty of the Christian Man. Sometimes it's called Christian Liberty, Christian Freedom. John Calvin devoted an entire chapter to the issue of Christian freedom in his classic book, The Institute to the Christian Religion. The Puritans even said more and wrote more about Christian freedom than I hear Christians today talk about. And you would, uh, you would not think the Puritans knew a lot about Christian freedom. They actually did. And they talked about it all the time. But we don't. Listen to what Martin Luther said one time. And maybe you'll get a sense of why this issue is so important. He says, friend, do not consider it a trifle to forbid what God does not forbid. To destroy the Christian liberty that cost Christ his blood. To burden consciences with sin where there is no sin. He who has the audacity to do this will also be audacious enough to commit any wrong. Yea, he has already renounced all that God is, teaches, and does, including his Christ. Those are strong words. Now, Luther could say things strongly. He does it all the time. But he really, really cares about this. It is no small thing to tell people that something they have freedom to do is actually sin. It's no small thing. It's not a trifle to forbid what God has not forbid. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to 1 Timothy chapter 4, says it's a doctrine of demons to forbid people to marry 
and to abstain from certain foods. Why would anybody teach people to not get married and to abstain from certain food? Well, you probably know. There are all kinds of Christians that say, if you really love Jesus, if you're really holy, then you'd be content to be single and you wouldn't want to get married. There are whole sections of the Christian church today that make it an official policy that the most spiritual people shouldn't get married. Right? Paul calls that a doctrine of demons. And he goes on in 1 Timothy 4 and says the reason it's a doctrine of demons is because God created everything to be received with thanksgiving. And when you distort what God says, you distort God himself. The character of God is distorted when you tell people that God basically doesn't like it if you're enjoying anything in life. Because that's what it always seems to be about here. These denials of Christian freedom usually center around this word asceticism. Now that's the word in the ESV translation that I'm reading from. What is asceticism? Well, asceticism basically means that you should deny yourself all pleasure, that the more holy you are, the more miserable you'll be. And if you're enjoying life, well, then you're probably doing it wrong. And a lot of people think that that's what Christianity is about because it seems very spiritual. It seems very noble. It seems heroic even to say, because I love Jesus so much, I'm not going to take joy or pleasure in anything else. But Paul says that's a doctrine of demons because you're misrepresenting God as one who doesn't want you to enjoy anything. Do you understand? It's a big deal. It's a threat to true spirituality. And there are two ways, I think, that we get tricked into this asceticism, this false view of spirituality, and Paul talks about those two ways here in this text. So let's heed his warning, shall we? He says the first way that we get sucked into this is looking to visions and super spiritual experiences, particularly the people that talk about those things. And the second is putting our hope in rules and rituals, particularly those that deny physical pleasure and joy. So let's look at those one at a time. Well, the first, the error of looking to visions and super spiritual experiences. Now, Paul says, no one disqualify you Verse 18, insisting on asceticism, that is this approach to life that denies all pleasure, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed, out, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Now, why asceticism and the worship of angels? Well, angels, you know, are not going to be married. Angels don't have physical bodies. Therefore, to a lot of people, they seem more spiritual. A lot of people will tell you that the real problem with you is that you're trapped in this earth suit. You ever heard anybody give, use that kind of language? It's so far from Christianity that I, I just want to shout sometimes. But Christians talk about this all the time. Like, oh, if I could just be set free from this earth suit, from this body, and my spirit could just soar. That's not Christianity. Jesus was very happy to take on a body. And in doing so, he did not sin at all. And he was fully pleasing to God in his physical body. And after his resurrection, he got a glorified yet still physical body. God is, never says that the problem with human beings is that they're physical. Though there are a lot of songs that we sing that give that impression, 
particularly songs about heaven that make it sound like our hope is to finally be set free from this world and physicalness and just let our pure spirits float up into heaven somewhere. That's not the biblical hope, right? But this, it seems very spiritual. And there are people who will talk about these kinds of visions where they just seem like, you know, they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Maybe you've heard that phrase. They're not truly heavenly minded in the way the biblical thing, Bible says about it, because the Bible speaks about the new heavens, the new earth that are going to come down. You're not going to float on a cloud forever one day. The new heavens and the new earth are physical. The redeemed creation, right? Christianity is not about asceticism. The idea that you just need to have pure spiritual delights and never enjoy the actual world that God has made, okay? And so Paul's saying, forget about this and, and be careful about people that want to lead you down that path, particularly the way they talk about their spiritual experiences, right? Because these kind of people often appeal to their remarkable experiences and the way they basically have denied normal pleasures. And, and, it, and you can kind of get sucked into thinking, well, oh man, I guess they really know Jesus in a way that I don't. And I wish that I could attain that level of spirituality. But you see here, the thing is, their authority is usually based on what they've experienced and not on what God says in his word. And, and it's easy to get sucked into this because Sometimes these people just seem so sold out for Jesus and so spiritual that you begin to wonder whether you're doing it wrong. Paul says they've lost connection to the head. That means they've lost connection to Jesus. And they've lost the sense that they're a part of the body, a part of the body, just like everybody else, needing the normal means of grace, right? It's this body is nourished and knit together, he says here in verse 19, through its joints and ligaments, it grows with a growth that is from God. I can't help but think about celebrity culture, right? And, and people that want to set themselves up as holier than other people or more in touch with God, and they lose sight that they're just ordinary parts of the body, maybe a, a knee, or an elbow, you know? No, they think that they're the high and mighty, and, and, and that we often can get sucked into that. The Christian celebrity culture is not a helpful thing because it takes us away from what Paul says is the normal Christian life there in verse 19. Holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, the whole body of Christ, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. In other words, Paul says, don't look to people that offer up these super spiritual visions. Be nurtured from God through the normal means of grace that comes from his church, the word of God, prayer, and worship. Because these means of grace focus us not on spiritual visions, but on the gospel and what Christ has done and the freedom that it brings. That is what God has given us for the normal Christian life, and that is enough. That's enough. You don't need extra spiritual experiences or visions. The other thing, the other error he points out here, is living our lives by rules that deny physical pleasure and joy. And Paul says it's a huge issue. Look at how he says this in verse 20. If with Christ you died 
to the elemental spirits of the world, or some translations say the basic principles of the world, why, as though you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Paul's saying, like, why would you do this? This is craziness. Have you forgotten that you've been set free from all this stuff? Paul says the only explanation for why you would want to submit to those rules again is that you've forgotten the whole point of what Christ came to do. Because Christ came to set you free. Don't let anybody judge you and don't let anybody bring you back into thinking that the way you impress God is through rituals and rules. Because that's not what it's about. And it's a huge issue. But he goes on and he says, not only is this kind of legalism trying to live your life by the rules, not only is it a forgetting of what Christ came to do, it's also stupid. It's stupid. It doesn't work. Look at what he says in verse 23. These, he means the rules, have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, other translations say, with their harsh treatment of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The NIV translation says they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And isn't that what we usually make our little rules about? It's trying to keep from doing things that our body wants to do. Whether it's what we eat, whether it's you know what we do sexually, we think that there's power in rules. But there's not power in rules. There's power in what Christ has done and the freedom that he has brought us. Legalism, living by the rules, doesn't work. And there's a couple reasons why. The first is, it focuses your attention on the wrong things. Paul says, you're focused on these things like whether you eat this thing or drink this thing or do this thing or don't do this thing. And all those things that you're using to define your spirituality, like they're not even going to last. They're all destined to perish with use, is the way the, the uh, NIV says. And so you're focusing on all the things, whether you do this or don't do that. But instead, you actually need to be focused on why are you doing what you're doing. Holiness is not so much about what you do, it's about why you do it. We've died to having to impress God. So why would we still go back to that way of living, is what Paul's saying. And legalism, he says, is foolish because it doesn't work. You see, rules have no power to change your heart. I talked about this a little bit last week when I talked about that illustration from the, the movie Office Space about motivation and how Peter in that movie says, basically, you know, I only work hard enough so that I don't get fired. Rules only can take you so far because you tend to like make these rules and then you tend to think that as long as I don't step outside the line, then I'm good. But you never think about heroic Christian obedience and what does it mean to really honor God with everything we have. That's what Christian holiness is about, right? And not only does Paul say, like in the Greek, actually, it's even stronger here. It doesn't just say they're of no value. It actually says they're worse than useless. Because arbitrary rules tend to just make you want to break them. And Paul talked about this over in Romans 
chapter 7. As a matter of fact, Paul said that he wouldn't have really known what coveting was until the law said, don't covet. And when the law said, don't covet, all he wanted to do was covet. There's a sense in which arbitrary rules, even good laws that God tells us about, have a way of provoking our rebellious hearts. Saying, nobody can tell me what to do, right? And so if you basically set up all these little rules and rituals, you're never going to change your heart. You may actually change your behavior, but your heart is probably going to be growing more and more bitter towards God. And honestly, I see that all the time with students that come to Belmont who've grown up with this kind of false view of spirituality. Don't taste, don't handle, don't touch. They try and obey the rules. They never feel like they've gotten close to the heart of God. And eventually they get so tired of it, so sick of it, that they just want to chuck the whole thing. They don't, they don't have any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You know why? Because they never get to the heart. They just try to put like a little box around you, but they never can change your heart. The only thing that can change your heart is seeing Christ crucified. John Owen, greatest um, Puritan theologian, said this. I was actually sharing this quote with, with Etta this week, and it made me think about it again. He says, mortification. Mortification means putting sin to death. Mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. See, the other problem with legalism is it's never satisfied. And once you start making extra laws beyond what God has said, well, you're misrepresenting God for one thing, but once you start down that path, you just come up with more and more and more and more laws. John Calvin put it this way, when men have once taken upon themselves to tyrannize over souls, there is no end of the new laws daily added to old ones and of new regulations always springing up. Uh, as a matter of fact, Paul, you know, Calvin uses this illustration talking about Christian freedom. And he says, you know, if you start thinking about, you know, should I really eat fine food because after all, I, I don't need to eat fine food. I could just do with bread and water and give the money to the poor. Now, that's not a bad thing to think about. But what he, Calvin says is Christian freedom understands that God has created a world for us to enjoy. And if you think that the more spiritual you are, the more you will never enjoy the good gifts that God has given, where does it stop? Because you'll be like, well, I don't even really need good food. I can just have kind of really bad food. And I don't even really, I could go, you know, eat out of the dumpster, you know, and probably survive. And, and where does it stop? Where does it stop? And you're understanding, misunderstanding, misrepresenting the heart of God, who is a father who delights to give good gifts to his children. Now, that's not, that's not just an opening to say, well, who cares then how I live? Remember that famous verse that I bring up a lot, Isaiah 54, 5, your maker is your husband. The one who's married himself to you made you to live in a certain way. And the apostle James tells us that the law is the perfect law of freedom. It tells us this is what we were made for, okay? But the, the normal Christian life is not about super spiritual visions. 
and all kinds of rules and rituals. It's about Christian freedom, staying connected to Christ the head, finding our place in the body of Christ. But it's hard to believe it, isn't it? It's hard to believe, especially when there are so many voices saying otherwise. That's why we sing songs like, I ask the Lord that I might grow, right? Because that's a great song about the normal Christian life. And it probably strikes you as the kind of song that you don't normally sing in Christian churches. I remember years ago, we had a student who her first thing she ever came to was the RUF Winter Conference. She was friends with a lot of people in RUF. By this point, I think she was a junior and she was not just an SLA, she was the SLC. So she was like in charge of all the SLAs. And yet she was doing all kinds of self-harm stuff and living in such shame and bondage and felt like she couldn't tell anybody. And she came to that RUF Winter Conference and she told this story at her senior testimony and gave me permission to share it. But she said that that first night, Friday night, when we sang, I asked the Lord that I might grow. She'd never heard the song before, but she looked around. She saw 500, 600 students singing that song like they believed it. And she thought, maybe these are some people that I can finally be real with. Listen, we so often misrepresent the normal Christian life. And I'll just close with this. When you misname normal, you really mess people up. RUF, we hope, will be a place where you learn that the normal Christian life is about struggle. John Newton, who wrote the, uh, the hymn, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow, he also wrote Amazing Grace, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, a lot of the greatest hymns that we have. He said that the normal one word, if you had to put one word on what it means to be a growing Christian, that word would be struggle. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Because when you misname normal, you really mess people up and you misrepresent God and the gospel. And that's a big deal. Let's pray together.